Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this episode, we discuss the impending US elections and the gathering gloom in Europe as several of the major economies are forced back into lockdown. With Miles Sherry, investment consultant, and Will Hobbs, chief investment officer. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. And it's fair to say this is a big one. On Tuesday next week, we have what some are calling the most consequential US election ever, whilst at the same time this week, we've had news of Europe's major economies shutting down again, bit by bit, one by one, as the infection count sadly continues to soar. Unsurprisingly, in and amongst all of that, markets have become significantly more turbulent, a bit like the weather this week down here in London, really. Um, And so to try and help us navigate through all of this, I'm joined by Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer. So, Will, let's dive straight into the US election. Now, looking at polling, it seems to have generally remained pretty steady, suggesting Joe Biden is more likely than not going to be the next president in the White House. Hey, hey, Miles. Yeah. And I think the operative word there is try uh, to navigate through all of this. It's, it's quite a lot. You're right. Uh, yes. I mean, I think on your, on your question, yes, there are a huge range of prediction models out there. Some incorporate just polls, some incorporate certain types of polls, uh, some take in the wider economy and other variables on sentiment, market conditions and so on. But the range of probabilities for Biden to win seems to be from around 60 to 90 percent, depending on methodology inputs, so quite a broad range. Basically, if you, I mean, if you ran this election 10 times, Biden has seen winning between six and nine times, Trump between uh, kind of one or four, one, one, one and four. It's a necessarily uh, a broad range. What about this idea, though, that polling persistently underrepresents President Trump's likely supporters? You know, I've seen the term shy Trump supporter being used in some press articles. But is there actually any evidence for that? After all, I would have thought such a report would show up in discrepancies between the phone and online polls. Yeah, I mean, there's two ideas in there, basically. The idea of shy Trump support has indeed been discredited or at least weakened by comparisons between online and off, uh, online and um, live phone polling, as you rightly point out. However, one of the key learnings from 2016 for pollsters uh, was that they missed key cohorts of the electorate, underrepresented them structurally, uh, which led them to underestimate key components of uh, President Trump's support. Now, some pollsters have apparently corrected or at least tried to correct for this bias, um, but importantly, not all of them. So there could conceivably be some continuing bias- biases uh, in some polling. But, you know, it's a very challenging backdrop out there for pollsters and for everyone trying to look at this election. There's a huge amount going on, you know, so certain states are enduring spikes in the outbreak, very sadly, which some are t- linking to kind of poll changes, maybe rightly or wrongly. So there there was a pretty dramatic poll out of Wisconsin yesterday that some sort of are scrabbling to explain by these means. So so it's a pretty complicated picture out there, to say the least. Mm, Absolutely. And it's pretty important, I think, to remember that this election is not all about who actually takes residence in the White House, because if Biden won by a landslide, the Democrats would likely take the Senate from the Republicans too. So what are the betting markets telling us about the potential for this, often referred to as a so-called blue wave, which of course is the Democrats controlling Senate, the House of Representatives and the White House? Yeah, I think last I saw, it's a little bit less than 60% probability, roughly speaking. The Senate is 
close to a toss-up. The House looks pretty likely to be returned by the Democrats, according to the polls. I think Howran observed last week that there had been some correlation between the evolution of this probability of a blue wave, you rightly call it, um, with long-end bond yields in the last few weeks. And that points to markets' expectations that such a scenario might well come, or could come, uh, with sizable deficit spending. Well, we shall see, of course. Right. And obviously, this is much more art than science. I'm not going to hold you and the team to anything here. <laughs> but what um, <laughs> but what do you think is actually priced into markets already? And in fact, I suppose a better way maybe of asking this question is what would actually come as a surprise to financial markets and how? Like you say, that's a very difficult question. Uh, I, I guess the, the biggest you know, if you take these odds as, as red, and that's, that's some assumption already, um, that the biggest surprise to these odds, in a sense, would be a second term for President Trump. But in a sense, if you compared, for instance, a second term to, with, uh, from President Trump with a uh, divided Congress to a first term for President Biden uh, with a divided Congress. I'm not sure how, you know, how markets would price those two eventualities. Uh, you know, that definitely, I mean, there may be some nuances, but it would be quite difficult to sort of see strongly different pricing in some senses. However, if you uh, look at sort of, you know, the, the blue wave we just talked about, you know, that conceivably could result in quite a different policy backdrop. Now, like I say, you know, probably, um, you know, given the odds, some of that is priced in, but you would still have to see if that did materialise, you would still have to see markets, you know, go a bit further to price that eventuality in. And there's going to be lots going on for obvious reasons throughout election night. No doubt you and the team will be having probably a late one and no doubt a very early start, probably armed with cups of coffee and energy drinks. But what in particular is actually worth keeping an eye on? We're well used to it by now, Miles. There's been a few of these all-nighters, haven't there? Uh, so yeah, there'll be not much sleep, but that's that's no problem. And it's quite complicated in truth. And now it's been well reported that this this has been um, there has been a gigantic early vote. So in some states, you are seeing uh, nearly as many votes cast um, uh, in early terms um, as you saw in total for 2016. Uh, so I think Texas is one of those states. But you know, interestingly, Brookings Institute estimates that as much of qu- a quarter of these are new or uh, what is often called kind of infrequent now voters. Now, as an aside, we could potentially see the highest proportional turnout um, of the last century plus. So I think 1908 is the record. So keep an eye out for that. But anyway, to to, to your question, I'm sort of diverting, uh, you know, digressing. Um, (laughs) One assumption seems to be that the path to knowing the election result likely runs through uh, Florida and North Carolina, for starters. So interestingly, you've seen a huge proportion of both of these states already uh, mailed in here. Both of these states have already announced that they will report on on this as soon as the um, polls close on the night. The thinking here uh, is that President Trump likely needs Florida to retain his his seat. If he doesn't take Florida, then his odds of a second term do start sort of darken materially. For the Senate race, North Carolina is seen as you know, quite important also for the for the Republicans. So, you know, if you if that doesn't happen, you then move to the kind of you know to the slower counting counting states with enough um, electoral votes outstanding. So, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and there are obviously some scenarios where we don't know uh, the the result for quite a while uh, quite a while afterwards. If you want shorthand for all of this on the night, um, you know, one advice would be to keep uh, your eye on U.S. Treasury yields. They will trade through the night. And if they spike higher, one explanation could be that markets are betting on this blue wave we just talked about. Uh, basically, you know, Democrats having uh, full control of the tiller. 
makes sense and and yeah really good points but based on what i've been reading and no doubt what our listeners and client base have been reading there is seemingly a real chance that the aftermath of the election could actually in reality get really quite messy so i guess the question for you is is this something that we're actually preparing for in our multi-asset class uh, funds and portfolios and is there actually anything that you can do about it we pointed out before that markets have already incorporated the expectation of volatility into their post-election uh, thinking. You can see that in the options curve. Uh, personally, I don't think we really have an edge here. We again would remind investors that most of the time this should be well below uh, your eye line. It's not particularly predictable. And the bits that are predictable tend to be already priced in. Uh, investors will be happier and likely more prosperous by staying focused on the longer term drivers of portfolio returns, the medium to longer term drivers of portfolio returns, uh, the wonders of productivity, the humankind's seemingly inexhaustible capacity to invent new stuff and getting, but get better at using that new stuff. That has almost nothing or probably totally nothing to do with who sits in the Oval Office in truth. Uh, it's a global story for a start, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we tend to invest globally. It's uh, it's the best way of scooping up all of that innovation and uh, future innovation, uh, and why we don't just focus on, say, the UK or just the US. Okay, and I just want to pick up on what you said there about the pandemic being a factor in the election, as I think it, it nicely leads us on, really, to the next topic that I'd like to pick your brains on. We've had big news this week around the virus, particularly in relation to Europe, with France and Germany shutting large chunks of their economies down in an obvious attempt to introduce a circuit breaker. And many experts are arguing for similar measures to come into place in the UK, among other places. Now, if I cast my mind back, I think it was around late summertime, you and the team actually went on record saying that full lockdowns looked like a relatively low probability. But based on what's been going on this week, have you changed your mind here at all? Uh, yeah, thank you, Miles, for reminding me of that. It's 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 true. I mean, we have uh, evolved our expectations a little bit here. The probabilities have shifted a bit. For whatever reason, Europe has struggled to replicate the success that some of the Asian countries have had with managing this latest uh, coronavirus. So you are seeing uh, strains on ICU capacity across a number of countries um, again. And this seems to have persuaded, or maybe among the factors that have persuaded many uh, experts and policymakers of the need for, for increased restrictions. Makes sense. So, so look, I guess globally, we should expect more government supports. Central banks, though, are surely nearly out of ammunition. And even if we do assume that more of them opt to go into negative interest rate territory, I expect there is probably some sort of limit there. Now, I know you guys are mostly pretty relaxed about government debt piles. We've spoken about that before and have for many years seen the limits of debts funded spending as further off than probably widely suspected. But where do you think those potential limits actually are? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a good question, Mars. I mean, uh, yes, there is potentially uh, a lot more capacity. So some have pointed out that uh, in some countries, I should I should point out, not all, um, but some have pointed out that the way we measure debt capacity is totally fundamentally flawed. So we tend to look at debt to GDP or output, but this is not apples with apples. Uh, debt is a stock number, i.e. a stationary snapshot, uh, whereas GDP is a flow figure, uh, essentially capturing output over a period of time. Now, basically, there are mainstream 
academics and economists uh, who are arguing that in order to have an apples for apple comparison with debt, uh, you need to compare it to the net present value of GDP, essentially looking at all the future potential output growth of the economy discounted back to a present day value, sort of like what we do with corporate profits in, in stock market valuation. Now, under this measure, wait for it, the net present value of US output is around $4 quadrillion, which provides uh, a, a different perspective, let's say. A uh, massive the number. <laughs> yeah, it's a massive number. It's the biggest number I think I've ever, you know, it's certainly the biggest number that's ever been <laughs> on this podcast. Um, but um, it, it provides a different perspective for the, you know, for the stock of debt on the US. I, I guess the point, um, and this is a point that we have been making more broadly, is that what we probably need, we're better off looking at interest payments as a rough measure uh, of debt capacity. Now, under this framework, framework, and something this is something Howran and JP have talked about as well. Uh, most economies have at least some further headroom to support their these economy their economies uh, in these you know really very very difficult times. And and you know you've got to think of a counterfactual. What would happen if I don't spend this money? And I think that's that's the important thing to think about also. You know, but we're but answering exactly how much debt capacity all these economies have. That's a, that's a that's an impossible question. It's something that's. Um, you know, still, a, still a, an area of hot debate. We'd only say that with interest rates where they are, there's probably a bit more room. Yeah, tricky stuff indeed. But look, a good deal of that is surely going to be needed as this is, I think, undoubtedly going to be in reality a pretty tough winter for many businesses and consumers alike without significant further support. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's likely, Mars. I mean, we, we we do have better information now about which parts of the economy, you know, businesses and and, and individuals suffer the most under these conditions. So it, it's about getting support to these areas as efficiently as efficiently as possible, like you say. So this is theory, of course, but what about markets in and amongst all of this? I think it's fair to say it's been a wilder, uh, bumpier week for stocks, really. A double dip recession is surely due in the post in Europe, and that's a delivery that likely wasn't really fully expected. And then a vaccine is still several months away at best. So what areas are the team particularly interested in at the moment? And why is it not time to run for the hills? And I mean that in investment terms, Will, because I know you're not a big fan of running. No, no, I'm unable to run nowadays. Uh, too much uh, deep fried chicken. But um, Mars, I think you're right. Um, you know, the vaccine timetable seems to be slipping a bit. And, you know, though this winter has long expected, to, you know, everyone's long expected it to be tough. Investors have had to rearrange expectations a little bit, I think, in the last couple of weeks. And we've seen that, like you pointed out, you know, some are pointing out that the, you know, on a, looking for sort of silver linings, some have been pointing out that the infection fatality rate seems to have declined a bit in both Europe and the US from earlier in the year. But there isn't consensus on that. Again, though, I think the thing you have to have in mind here as an investor is the full spectrum of possibility from this point, not just what could go wrong, but what could go right. Um, so the vaccine timetable has slipped, but still most expect it, you know, first half of the year in terms of first half of next year in terms of a fairly widespread rollout um, of one or maybe more. And you know, we still expect some data on this in November and December in terms of news flow, which could be influential. You could also see news flow on treatments. We also know a bit more about the policymaker reaction to the lockdown scenarios. They are unlikely to stand aside. And again, it's a reminder, I think, that the main thing for investors to focus on is the medium term outlook for productivity, which is really unchanged in our eyes. Remember that most of the hopes, fears and expectations about the near term future they're already priced into markets pretty effectively. That which isn't, the team, uh, as you know, uh, sort of 
very clever group of people. Uh, they uh, they're they're full time trying to scoop up those uh, you know those pricing inefficiencies or however you want to describe them uh, with our tactical asset allocation. But like I say, that's a full time job for a team of people, not something to be tried part time. Absolutely. And then just to wrap up, I just want to loop back to the US election because I know you love your history. And a while back, I heard you reference the theory of a well-known American political scientist who essentially suggested that we are coming to the end of a political super cycle and the birth of a new one. Now, if I remember rightly, his theory basically required, or at the very least would be strengthened, by the idea that President Trump would be a one-term president and the Democrats would sweep in pretty emphatically. So do such theories play any role in how we actually go about organising our investments? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's only one thing worse than a history bore, and it's a history bore with a platform. Uh, so I do apologise. I do bang on about <laughs> it a lot. But yes, um, yeah, that was Stephen Skoronek. And uh, I think you can hear... You can read his uh, you can read his thoughts in many places, but there's a good uh, LSE podcast on it. Uh, lecture or he lectured. Uh, they've recorded his lecture on uh, uh, on LSE podcasts. If you are interested, now the, the, these you know just thinking more broadly. I mean, these super cycle patterns uh, can be very alluring. I have to admit, um, and he's a credible guy who seems to have spotted uh, you know quite a convincing pattern in terms of the swings and roundabouts and you know your long term swings and roundabouts in U.S. politics. However, uh, beware. Uh, you know this, I know this, humans are inveterate uh, pattern spotters uh, or pattern recognizers. Uh, and it's an important, that's an important part of how we learn and, you know, make decisions in some senses efficiently. However, while it could be right, Skoronek's theory falls a long way short of what we would describe as statistical significance, as he's really only identified these kind of three super cycles. That's not his fault. The history of US presidential politics is not really old enough to plausibly incorporate more. But that means that uh, we really should be wary of any inference, uh, you know, even if, you know, these super cycles can sound sometimes intuitive for to us. However, you know, what it does remind me of, and I think well, the lesson it is important for investors, uh, is that, and this is something that I'm afraid, uh, again, another subject that I'm incredibly boring about. I'm starting to bore myself on this subject. But <laughs> what it does remind me of is that regimes can change. Um, you know, maybe we're at such a moment, maybe not. Uh, but it is conceivable to argue that this election could potentially catalyze a material change in, you know, in US fiscal policy thinking, you know, the size and role of the state, all sorts of things, uh, or conceivably it could not. However, you know, as we keep on saying, this means that thought alone, that means you need to organize your investments very carefully. Do not just let your investments uh, whittle down to a basket of recent winners. It's very tempting to do that. You look back and just look at the stuff that's performed and you want to own more of it. But the context that has helped these assets win and others lose can easily change. This pandemic, this this election could, ins could conceivably be part of a trigger uh, for such a change. And the point, as always, is cast your investment net more widely than that. Uh, that's what we do for our clients. It's a very important part um, of the process that JP and the uh, and the team kind of uh, embed into um, their thinking and the way that they uh, spread assets around uh, uh, around the world. It wouldn't be a word on the street episode with you on, Will, without a bit of history. But look, jokes aside, thanks as ever for your words of wisdom there. It's certainly going to be an interesting week ahead. Thanks as usual to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed it. And as always, we do welcome any feedback you may have. So please do feel free to get in touch. That's all from us. Enjoy the weekend when the time comes and we will speak next week.
All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.